All right, welcome back. This is Dear Baseball Gods, episode 45. And we have a lot, if you're watching the video version of this, there's a lot of uh, new things going on. Number one, I have a new mic. Uh, it's not really a new mic, it's a lavalier mic. It's clipped to my shirt. Uh, my Pelican Batwax shirt, which shout out to Pelican. Uh, they by no means sponsor uh, or anything, but I have their shirt. They kind of have like an old school style, and I think they have cool stuff. So. I've had this shirt for a couple years and I still dig it. Um, so anyway, I have a different mic. It still, still seems like it sounds pretty good. And uh, really, I just left my other one in the stand uh, at Warbird Academy. But B, and much bigger, I am bald. I got really fed up with my haircut the other day, which uh, I had I had buzzed my head to like a number two for a long time in college. But when I had like still pretty thick hair at that point, it looked fine. And then when I started thinning a lot more at like 28, uh, I started to question whether that was the right thing to do because when you buzz it, it just, you know, short hair, it wasn't enough to cover the, the, the landscape beneath. So I started growing it out last year and started getting real haircuts again at 29, something I hadn't done in a long time. And as long as it was like a medium length, it was still, in, it was still pretty good. But if it got too long, then it was like the scraggly trees, you could start to see the gap between them. But when they were just like shrubs, the forest looked a little more dense, I guess. So anyway, uh, my hair was just like, I needed a haircut and it was Thursday and I couldn't get a haircut probably till next Tuesday because my barber's not open on Monday. And I had already like filled my day out on Friday and I was traveling to Indianapolis. And I just was like, God, I look terrible. I hate this haircut. I can't go this whole weekend with my, and I'm never self-conscious. I'm like way too uh, arrogant to usually feel self-conscious, but I just like hated my hair, the way my hair was. So I decided I was just gonna like go bald and just like, I didn't bick it, but I uh, put like the triple zero guard. I have this nice Oster um, high powered trimmer. And uh, so now myself and my business partner, Lucas Cook, both have the same bald head and I'm still coming to terms with it. It's weird when you do something new, you like look in the mirror and you don't like that. Who you are in the mirror is not who you envision. And I'm still faced with that right now. I think I need some tan on my scalp maybe and that'll sort of go away. Now, I don't really care that much because I'm just like way too handsome for my own good. So if this knocks me down a peg, that's fine. But uh, it's been an interesting transition. It, again, I still look in the mirror and uh, don't see don't see my normal self. So it's it's been odd. But I remember like when I wore aviator sunglasses for the first time, I uh, I felt that same way. I'm like these look like these maybe look like a bug. They look terrible. But then when you just start to get used to them, they start to blend. And uh, you know I like aviator sunglasses, so whatever. But anyway, so a lot of big changes. New mic, new haircut. Or lack of hair, you know, I'm just, I'm just packing it in basically. Um, you know, I'll be dead, I'm 32, I'll be dead in decades now, I'm getting close. So anyway, uh, this is episode 45 and I'm going to talk a little bit about umpires because we had a fun weekend with my team and uh, I had an interesting, I, I made a mistake, I talked to the umpires and it ended up helping us in the end. I don't know that anyone knows this but me. So... My big thing with the umpires is I've told our families in my academy, I've told the players, and I've experienced it in my own career that I, we expect umpires to be terrible. 
and that's not a knock on them. We're just going to expect to get bad calls, to get screwed with calls, to win and lose games on poor officiating. And I'm not, this is not like an anti-umpire um, rant or anything. This is just like the nature of youth sports. They're not highly trained. They're just lowly trained, whatever you want to call it. And most umpires just, they're just, their strike zones aren't that good. They make very poor calls on the regular. All right, we'll just be honest about it. Now, there are some very exceptionally great umpires, and they're all people, obviously. So we try to, at the very least, treat them like people. But anyway, I asked my our organization to knock it on the umpires. I told my players, do knock it on the umpires. Expect to get rung up on bad pitches. Expect to get bad, uh, bad strike calls going your favor when you're pitching. So... It all evens out in the end, just like with all the luck in baseball. It all is going to eat. It's all going to even out in the end. So just don't. Let's just not make it a big thing. So, uh, you know, me being in my head coaching role for the first time, it's been. Uh, you know, I go up and interact with the umpires more. I can run out there and yell at them if I wish. Uh, I have not really yet done that, but I also, in the off season, spent a good amount of time thinking about what. I would do with umpires because some of my mentors, one of my one of my biggest mentors, uh, this guy named John Duffy, was my summer ball coach in for three consecutive years with the Silver Spring uh, Thunderbolts in the Cal Ripken League. He would run out there and just give them hell, and he was a, a kind of tough guy to get along with on the field, a real competitive, um, anti-authority kind of kind of guy. So Duff, if you're listening, you know that's you. But anyway. Um, and I didn't think I would be like that, but at the same time, one of the things that Duff did not do was really like curse at them or, but he would go out there and make his point, make them angrily. I mean, don't get me wrong. And, uh, but he was also like much more articulate than most people. He wasn't just out there shouting. He was like, look, that call's terrible. You're, you're changing the game. Let us play the game here's the call that you should have made, here's why you blew the call that you did, blah, blah, blah. It was a, he was like a little bit different in the way he did it. Um, but he would get on umpires constantly, ball strikes, all this other stuff. And I always wondered, is he helping us? Is he hurting us? Because there's clearly psychology. These are not robots. These people are humans. And when you get on them, and just like with me, like when people get on me, even if I don't like what they're saying and I think they're wrong, I still tend to consider my actions a little more carefully as I go forward. So I think even if you're pissing the umpire off and you're getting on him about his performance, I still think you're probably getting him to reconsider whether that pitch he did make or, or did call or didn't call or whatever really was what he called it. I still think you're getting under his skin where he's going to think, okay, maybe I, maybe I do need to think a little harder. So I think there's, there's benefit there, obviously. And I've talked about this a number of times. The biggest benefit for going out and arguing with the umpire is not for the call's sake. Like, I'm fully aware almost no calls get overturned. They happen much more in youth baseball. And other times they'll ask the other umpire. Like, sometimes they just don't know the rules. Like, the other day, the infield fly rule was not called twice in the same game. And I'm like, we're playing baseball rules, right? Like, strange. But, uh, so, like, obvious things like that do happen. So sometimes you have to go out there and remind them the sport that we're playing. Uh, but, most of the time, you know, the call's not going to get reversed. So why go out there and certainly why make a scene? And the biggest thing, which I've told my players this, and I've told the parents this, I've told, I've talked to lots of other people about this. You go out there to protect your player. And this was something that was 
told to me a bunch of different times is that, you know, Duff and some other managers, they said, you know, I don't go out there a lot of times to argue the call. I go out there to argue for you because when I see a player getting upset and he's getting emotional, um, and emotional is a weird term because you think of like crying, but when you're getting frustrated or angry to the point where you're going to say something to the umpire yourself as a player, that's where the coach needs to go out there and fight the battle for you so that you feel validated, so that you can say, okay, he's got my back, he's fighting it, then you've been heard, essentially, and now you can go back and finish pitching or hitting or playing the field or whatever. So that's the biggest, uh, that's the biggest advantage to going out and, and arguing with the umpires. So this past weekend, we were in a tight game in our semifinal game in the bracket, and uh, there was... A first and third situation, I think we were tied, and it was two outs, and we decided to throw through, which I didn't really have a problem with. Our catcher was doing a good job catching runners. And, uh, you know, so he throws down. It's turf. It was an in-between throw where it didn't, like, take a nice long hop, and it didn't make it there in the air. It kind of took a little bit of a medium hop, and it kind of, like, caught the rubber of the turf, the rubber infill, and kind of, like, popped up. So the ball beat the kid there by a bunch, but because the throw kind of really took a high bounce, our shortstop had to grab it and really bring it down. And the ball beat him by a bunch, but it was a 50-50 whether he was out or safe. The ball beat him by a ton, but the throw was high. The, the tag had to go down. He got him kind of like on the shin, I think. And uh, I was sure they were going to call him out, but they called him safe, and the run scored. And our shortstop was heated about it, and... He threw the ball back to the pitcher, and he said, like, one thing to the umpire, like, nothing big, like, nothing to get in trouble or anything, but just, and I was like, eh, and I should have run out, but I didn't. Uh, it just, like, I kind of hesitated, and then after I hesitated, I just kind of thought, oh, like, the moment's kind of dissipating. And then I, I kind of ruminated over it over the next couple innings, and I thought about it, and I thought, yeah, I should have gone out, like, because when he came in, he was asking me, like, he was out, right? He was out, he was out. And even then I told him, like, man, it, I think he was out, but it was really close. Like, it could have gone either way. That was, you know, I, either way. I didn't have his back either time, whether we are talking about the dugout or out, you know, running out there to protect him. So I kind of screwed that up. And uh, so I was thinking about it for a couple innings. And the umpires were good. They are very good umpires. Like, two of the best we've had all year. Uh, they, I'm sure they were high level college umpires, um, like decent guys. Like, you know, I talked to him a little bit at the, the line of exchange and, um, you know, seemed, seemed like cool dudes. They did two of our games. So in the second one, you know, I just BS with them a little bit between innings here and there when I'm doing like lineup changes and subbing guys in and stuff like that. And, uh, so I go up after that, I have a change and I go over and I'm, and I talked to the field umpire, his name was JT, I'm like, JT, you know that, that stolen base call, you know, an inning ago, he, and I'm like, man, and he, and he cut me off, because he didn't know what I was going to say, but he's like, he's like, no, man, like the ball, you know, the tag was, the tag was high, the tag was late, like he, he got under it, and I was like, no, I'm not arguing against it, like, I feel like it was 50-50, he could have gone either way, but I'm like, man, I screwed up, I should have run out there, and just, I should have gone out there and like, you know, uh, MF'd you a little bit and um, shout in your face and maybe like spit on you just to like make my guy because he was frustrated and he was he was upset about it 
and he's like, oh man, I, I understand. He's like, I understand. Like that's that's what you got to do. Sometimes like he's like, look, he, he like touches my shoulder. He's like, look, you got to come out there, and if you got to like pull me aside and be like, JT, I think I think you've made the right call, but I got to call you a couple names right now just to just to validate you know my player and our team and just like save you know save face a little bit. He's like, man, you can come out here and you do it. You do it. Like I I know I know what it's. I, so like I said, just affirming that he was a good dude and who got it. So anyway, um, we had a little laugh. I ran back to the dugout, whatever. So in the seventh inning, our team was down six to four. And uh, we had, I think we made the first out, and then we hit a single, and then we hit another single to the right side. Look kind of like humpback liner that goes over the first baseman's head. And it was an exciting game. We were like back and forth. Teams were evenly matched. Uh, obviously, our team was better. But so the ball goes over the first baseman's head. It was a little, like I said, a little humpback kind of liner. Off the bat, I knew it was going to fall in. It wasn't anywhere going to get caught. But the runner at first kind of hesitated and kind of waited to see it, it fly a little bit longer. And uh, as soon as he started to like run, realized he was going, I, and I can project my voice pretty well, I was like, get going, get going, like get here. And uh, we were in the third base dugout, my team. And then as soon as I'd yelled that like really loud, like so that he definitely heard me because he couldn't hear anything uh, over my voice, I looked at our third base coach and he had his arms up and he was holding them at second. And I was like, ew. <laughs> and just sure enough, he like runs hard through second, coming to third base, which he was going to make it easily. Like off the bat, it was like a ball slicing over again, like kind of over more over the first baseman's head than the second baseman's head by a wide margin. And it was going to be an easy, like standing, like walking into third base if he's just going on contact pretty much. But third baseman, third base coach is holding him up which wasn't the wrong move because, again, we needed two runs. We didn't need one. He was the lead runner. So getting to third base wasn't that big of a deal with one out. You know, like, he needs to score anyway. The guy behind him has got to score for us to, to tie the game. So, obviously, he gets halfway to third and then gets called a rundown. And as soon as that happened, I'm like, oh, the game ends right now. <laughs> like, this, if he's out if he's out at second here or out at third, if he's out in this pickle, uh and that's the ball game. Like we're gonna have two outs and a runner on first, and it's kind of a bad rundown. It's not the worst rundown, but it's kind of a bad rundown. He, it's like one or two throws. Then he's going back to second, and the throw is going to second, and the ball beats him by a, a pretty good amount. And he slides feet first, which is the worst way to slide back into base. And the tag goes down. It's like pretty clear that he was out. And JT, our umpire in the field, calls him safe. It was. Uh, I mean. It was a big deal. So then we had first and second, one out. We ended up plating him, and I think we were down to like maybe a runner on second, maybe I don't know. And we ended up losing. So we didn't get we didn't get the the tying run, and we lost six to five. And as uh, the players are coming off the field in the next inning or in that end of that inning, um, JT comes over and he pulls me aside. He goes, "You see that call second base?" He's like, "I got you, I got you, I got you." And I was like, "All right, all right." So my point here is uh, umpires are people, and I've actually liked meeting them. Like they like baseball, obviously. Like they, a bunch of them been, seem like cool, cool guys and enjoy the game and have a good perspective and obviously you have to be, have some a level of patience. And I don't know, like baseball is just not that big of a deal. So if we're out there making it a big deal, watching 13, 14, 15, 16 new baseball, if we're out there just grumpy and disgruntled, like why are we doing it, right? So... The bunch of umpires we've had have been just like 
easygoing, like whatever. They're out there just having a good Saturday uh, umpiring baseball. And uh, so obviously, like if I had not gone out there and kind of just BS with him and told him how I should have gone out and yelled at him, um, there's no shot he gives us that call at the end of the game, right? Like he was he was under the tag enough where it wasn't like the most absurd safe call you've ever seen. It wasn't absurd, but like probably at least eight out of 10 times if that happened, that like that exact play eight out of 10 times, he's out. Very, very rarely is he not out on that because the ball beat him. Me might've got under it kind of, but I mean, I was like, oh God, he's out. He was safe. But just the fact that I just kind of like talked to the umpire and that, you know, because again, I i don't know who's to, to attribute to this quote, but you know, the idea that between stimulus and response is free will or whatever, you know, you're, that little gap is where, you know, a golfer can shank it or a pitcher can get the yips, uh, whatever. And so when the umpire sees the play, even though they're usually lightning quick with the outer, outer safe or striker ball, uh, in that little brief gap between I saw the play happen, is the outer safe, and then I make the call, I and we wriggled in there, like as the team that he like liked more because like the coach was cool or whatever and the players played hard and um, just talked to him a little bit because I'm sure being an umpire is lonely, whatever. And it's not like you need my companionship. I'm just saying like I had a good rapport with the umpires, not because I was trying to manipulate them or anything, just because they did a great job. They were two of the best umpires we'll probably ever have this year and uh, just kind of like talked baseball a little bit with them. And when it came down to it between stimulus and response, the, the play and the call, he decided, I'm going to give these guys this call. And that's pretty awesome. So, um, you know, we're trying to establish a good brand with our team, an organization that has class and, and wins and plays hard and just has like good principles in general. And some of that is just me when I'm traveling with the team, trying to have a rapport with the tournament directors and the other coaches and the umpires, just like shake their hands and say hello and um, BS with them a little bit and just like have a kind of a personality. Like that's part of it, just being a decent, decent person. And, uh, you know, it seems like that's, if, if nothing else, we're going to be on the right side when it's very borderline. Um, they're not going to, I don't think, ever try to screw us out of calls or, and if they have makeup calls, they're probably going to go our way. So it's just been one of those things where with all interactions as like a business owner or a coach or a, whoever, with all these interactions with people, you always have, it's not that you want to manipulate other people's responses, but you have a way to shape your behavior and your responses to get what you want out of the situation. And usually that's just to have a harmonious relationship with whoever you're talking with. So the way you, you listen and the way you respond to people and the way you uh, just show disapproval or approval or your body language or just the way you greet people, your eye contact, all these things have a huge profound effect on how people feel about you and then your product or your business or your organization, your team, whatever it is. So it's continued to be an interesting learning, uh, learning, learning thing, whatever I'm trying to say, I don't know. Uh, this is one of my first night night podcasts because I have a long day recording more video tomorrow. And uh, so I lost a word here. All right, deal with it. But anyway, so it's been uh, it's been interesting being on the coaching side, dealing with umpires for the first time. Because as a player, I still never got too super worked up about calls. Obviously, like intense situations like that one, 
or you know that, that stolen base call costs us a run. Now, the real response to that is like, look, you don't like the call, catcher, hit him in the chest, throw it in the air, you know, or make the long hop. You could have made a better throw. The reality is he could have made a better throw, and the kid was dead. Like it was a strong throw. Uh, it was a quick release. It was a fastball that he ran on. Our pitcher held him pretty well. Everything was in set. It was in set in motion for us to catch that runner, but the throw was mediocre. It was a hard throw, you know, make it to him in the air. If you make it to him in the air, the umpire's discretion doesn't even come into play because the kid's out by an absolute mile, right? So at the end of the day, that's still my, my response to it. And, uh, you know, one of the things that my coach Duffy that I never agreed with was that he would say how, you know, this pitch umpire calls, you know, one, two fastball on the corner, clearly on the plate umpire calls it a ball. Now it's 2-2. Instead of uh, throwing him a, let's say it's 1-1. That was a bad example. 1-1. Fastball around the corner. Clearly a strike. Calls it a ball. Now instead of being 1-2 where I go to my slider, my wipeout pitch to punch that guy out, now I got to throw him another fastball and he drives it. That pitch, because he called that strike a ball, changed the at-bat. It changed what I could throw and what I could do. You know, it's like instead of me taking, you know, like my fist to the fight, uh, if I got that strike call, now I get to use like a bazooka, you know, I get to go to my slider, you know, like when Andrew Miller with his, you know, wipeout slider for the Indians, when he's 3-1, ignoring the fact that he could still throw 3-1 sliders, when he's 3-1, he's probably got to throw a fastball more often than not. So if, you know, that 2-1 call goes his way and he's 2-2, now he's probably going to throw that slider or whatever. But, you know, so one ball or strike call absolutely can change the bat. And that happened to us uh, the previous week where, I remember the situation. I don't know that anyone else uh, on our team really would have because it seemed like an inconsequential pitch. But we had the bases loaded. We were down four to two. We had one out um, and one of our bottom of the order hitters up. But it was 3-0, kid threw a legit strike, and then 3-1 threw a pitch that was clearly a ball. It was clearly mid-shin. The catcher dragged it down, never started to strike, ended clearly a ball. And the umpire called it strike two. And then on the next pitch... Struck, the, struck our kid out. That pitch changed the game. It legitimately changed that game. That one fastball that would have walked in a run, besides walking in a run, it was also bringing up a stronger hitter who was up behind him, with who would have come up with one out in a situation where at 14 new baseball, they're not turning double plays like crazy. If all if this next kid does is put the ball in play, we probably tie the game. So that was like a really like a two run, maybe more than two run swing because of one pitch. So, it, you, know, you know, Duff would go out and he would argue, you know, when a bad strike ball call, like you're changing the game, you're changing the game, you know, you, you get it out in the field, it got, you get it out in the field, it might end the inning, but instead it's a safe call, the inning extends, single, double, now the floodgates open, it can change the game. But at the same time, it is part of the game too. And again, those calls are going to go over time to both teams. Now, when you're Say you're in a championship game or you're in a semi, you know, like we were in a semifinal game, we would have gone and played for a tournament title if we'd won that game. It's hard to think like long term, like, oh, these will all even out when it costs you a tournament victory potentially today or it costs you a World Series. You know, it's hard to say like, oh, it'll even out when I don't care about it evening out. I wanted that call now because he changed my career. Like with, uh, was it, uh, I can't think of his first name, but Mr. Galarraga, who threw the perfect game that Jim Joyce blew the call on the last out at first base, right? 
that changed everything, just that one call, obviously. So it's tough to say, like, oh, he probably got other bad calls went his way, right? But they didn't even out for that one. You know, that was a perfect game. That puts him in the, the record books forever. So it's hard to say, like, oh, I got a couple bad calls a year ago that were just one out call, but this was a much more important one out call. So it's hard to be, again, have that the correct perspective, I think, to really think long term. You know, and that's the same thing. I've talked about poker a bunch of times and the odds and how people get, you know, the at the table get pissed when they, they play good cards, they play them the right way, and someone else plays like a moron, makes a call they never should have called, and then they win and take all their money. People get pissed when that happens. But at the same time, they have those the smart players realize that when people make those dumb calls, they will win sometimes because of just pure luck. But most of the time when they make that call, they get their money. They get that idiot's money. And uh, they want people to make that bad call. You want them to make the bad call that one out of 10 times you get screwed on, but nine out of 10 times they screw themselves because it was a, the wrong thing to do. It's the poor percentage play. So it still goes that way. And that's why I don't really complain to the umpires as a, as a coach. That's why I didn't really complain about the umpires as a player. Now, when it really, again, it can really change things for you. You get a ball, an obvious strike called a ball. Now you make another pitch, and the guy hits the ball in the gap and plates three runs or something. It's tough to say, like, okay, that's okay. That, you know, I'll get the next one because one call is probably not going to give you three runs back. Um, but at the same time, it is just part of the game. I don't know that baseball is better with robot umpires. Maybe it is, um, but at the same time, it's what you live with. And with all this stuff, you just try to have a perspective on what you can and can't control, which that's just like the most cliche thing. Like it's, I get so irritated and annoyed trying to be like, oh, just trust the process. And it's just this and that. I'm so tired of hearing the process of seeing hashtag process on people's shirts. Because at the end of the day, when you play long enough, no one cares about your process. You don't get paid for your process. You don't get paid for any of that stuff. Now, you could argue like in a roundabout way that you do because when you go up and have good at-bats, you're eventually going to get your hits, blah, 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 blah. But at a certain point, you don't get paid for trying hard. You don't get paid for being the hardest worker. You don't get paid for having a legendary work ethic. You don't get paid for not going out and drinking with your buddies or whatever. You don't get paid for any of that. You get paid for results. And so... The process is great, and the process really is what gives people long-term results. I completely and utterly agree and get that, but at the same time, sometimes people will just put too much emphasis on the process, and it's just such a, it's just a fun buzzword, oh, the process, so just keep grinding it out, trust the process. Okay, uh, process is great, but when you go out there and your process has been good, but you don't get good results, do we care about the process then? You know, if your process is good, you have immaculate work ethic, you have immaculate pregame habits, you have great routines, but you go out there and you suck, do we care about your process? You don't get any points for process. You get points for getting people out and being uh, contributing to winning games for your team and to providing value. So all that stuff, you know, what you can and can't control, process, I don't know, it, it just... Over time, it just it gets tired to me. And while, again, I, I completely agree with all that, sometimes, you know, like even in my own team, like, look, guys, 
we're doing things right in practice or we're doing things right. We have a good pregame routine. We're doing it. But when you go out here and drop fly balls, you know, you, you got to make the plays. Like no one else can make them for you. And then the other thing I want to talk about with umpires is just the strike zone in general. So this has nothing really to do with umpires, but just how much the strike zone changes and the standard for throwing strikes changes over time. So I don't think a lot of young players understand this. Now I didn't understand it as I aged, but, and I obviously I didn't play affiliated baseball. I didn't play major league baseball, but the levels that I ascended were similar. So I started in the frontier league after playing division one, small division one baseball at UMBC. And, uh, I, you know, played in the Frontier League, the American Association, and finally the Atlantic League, which you know, the Atlantic League is very close to like AAA baseball, like AA, AAA baseball. So the uh, the quality of umpires rose with every level that I rose as well. So basically, and what happened with me, and I, I was listening to this leadership book. Uh, I've been doing a ton of audio books this year, but one of them I've recently listened to um, was called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, who is the, uh, I think he's the CEO of Andreessen Horowitz. I think he's the CEO, I don't quote me on that, but he's obviously the Horowitz in Andreessen Horowitz, which is a venture capital, for, venture capital for, firm bleh, in Silicon Valley. So, Silicon Valley, whatever, however you say it, some one of those valleys in uh, San, California, whatever. So anyway, He's talking about his life as a CEO. He was a CEO of a couple different companies, and uh, he gives just lots of leadership advice. So a lot of that wasn't relative to me because it's kind of a little bit specific to CEOs sometimes. But and I maybe would consider myself the CEO of of uh, Warbird Academy. But anyway, he talks about how n nothing prepares you to be a CEO other than being a CEO, and he said how with promotions within a company, you're, you never know. He's like, you know, within any company, you'll find tons of examples of people who you say, how in the world did he or she get that job? They're an, an incompetent idiot. How are they a senior vice president? And he said, he's like, look, that's not maybe the wrong observation. There's always going to be people who are incompetent for the job they hold. And he's like, and here's the reason why. How are you ever going to know when they hit their incompetency level? So you have these people that do their job well. They get promoted. They, get, they do that next job well. They get promoted again. How are you going to know when they're going to hit their ceiling, when they can't do the job properly anymore, when, they hit, when they're finally in over their head? He's like, you're not going to know that until they get there. And then they get, they're going to be there, and they're maybe going to be just kind of like in that position for a while. And suddenly you... You didn't know this, but now you have, you know, you promoted a, a sales account manager to then like head of account sales to like regional manager to, you know, to junior VP to like senior VP to like CFO. How did you know he, if he's done everything well to that point that he wasn't going to be a good CFO? You don't know until you promote him there. And then he's there and he's incompetent or she's incompetent. And, uh, I, I, under, I, like, I got that. I, I get that because that's exactly how it is in sports. You try to get to the next level. You get, you know, you play junior high baseball, which when I grew up in Maryland, there was no junior high sports. It's a new thing to me that they do that in the Midwest. They play junior high baseball, but they didn't have that opportunity. It was middle school where I grew up. But anyway, you play junior high baseball. And then you play varsity baseball, freshman baseball, JV baseball. 
high school baseball, or sorry, varsity baseball, can you play all those levels? A lot of freshman players struggle at JV, then they don't make the varsity team, or they do okay at JV, and then they struggle at the varsity level, and that's where their career ends. Or they succeed the varsity level, they get played D3 baseball, and then they that's where their career ends, you know? Um, obviously with sports is a little different because you can be very competent. Like you could be a successful division two baseball player, hit 370 and not get drafted and not play professional baseball. Um, so even though you succeeded at that level, you, people know you're not going to be competent in the professional level. So they just, you don't get selected for that job, but then you could be, you know, say you're a successful division one player they draft you, you go to rookie ball, or you're a million dollar high school draft pick and you get $2 million signing bonus as a, you know, second round pick. Second round picks, I think they all get over a million now. It's crazy. But second round pick, $1.6 million. You go to rookie ball, you get destroyed. Next season you come in, they send you to A ball, you get destroyed. And then you go back, they send you A ball again, you repeat a, a second time and you get destroyed. Uh, they weren't going to know that until they put you in that situation. It's no one's fault. It's extremely hard to pick talent, especially in baseball. You know, I think in basketball and stuff like that, like it seems maybe a little easier, but uh, in baseball, it's a kind of a big crapshoot because they just don't know mentally, physically, are you going to hold up? Are you going to get injured? Are you going to do all this stuff? When are you going to hit your level of incompetency? They just don't know. And so one of the factors with that, especially for pitchers is, and this is where I kind of come in, is the strike zone. So the strike zone, like the strike zone that I see now with kids, it's, it's big. I mean, it's big. And even at the high school varsity level, it's a big strike zone. In college, pretty, you know, liberal strike zone. They'll give you some off the plate. Every umpire is different, obviously, but the zone is significantly bigger in amateur baseball. And then in pro baseball, it really contracts. And, uh, and then... As you get higher up, umpires get better, and they're looking really specific, like they're on that corner, like ball. And you're like, really? It's like really close. You can just like say strike. They're like, no, I know that's a ball. Like for me, that's a ball. And there's still lots of bad umpires, but as you get better ones, I mean, you see how they're very sharp and they know what a ball and a strike is for them. And uh, this is where your command gets exploited. So say your guy has really good strikeout stuff, but your command wasn't that great. Say you're walking four, four batters in college per nine innings. If you go to pro ball, you might start walking five or six because A, hitters are more disciplined, so they swing at fewer balls. So they don't help you as much on giving you that high one that's out of the zone or lunging for one that's clearly breaking out of the zone. So they give you, the hitters give you fewer strikes that would have been balls. Um, and then umpires, they're tougher too. So there's those two factors. The strike zone contracts physically because of the umpire, and then it contracts even more because even though this might be your strike zone, and if you're in the audio version of this, I'm just holding up a box the size of a Kleenex box. That might be the strike zone, the actual called strike zone. But then the hitter, he has a strike zone as well. So balls that he will swing at that are beyond that box that he will help you with a certain percentage of the time. So obviously it's not 100% of the time, but there's a certain percentage that he'll chase and help you out. It's extremely hard to throw all called strikes in a game. And you've, I'm sure we've all seen pitchers who you get out there and they cannot possibly throw enough strikes to called strike you out. I remember there were a couple times where that was the case. There was a guy uh, when I played summer ball. His name was Evan Fredrickson. 
huge, like 6'6 lefty. He was throwing like 93 to 96. And this was back in like 2006, where that was extremely hard. That's a little more, it's still not pedestrian, but it's a lot more common now than it was then. Back then, that was the hardest I'd ever seen a, a guy throw. And it was just cruising out of his hand, really, really easy. He ended up being a second round pick. He played at a local school in Maryland. I can't remember what it was. And then uh, he ended up transferring to University of San Francisco. And then he got drafted in the second round. He could not throw a strike. Just couldn't. And uh, hitters knew it. If you, could, if you stood up there, chances are he could not throw three called strikes to get you out. And our hitters knew that. And they knew they weren't going to hit 95 coming from a steep downhill with just like this crazy life on it either. So... Uh, he walked a lot of hitters because they didn't, they didn't want to take the bat off their shoulder because they had a pretty good idea. They weren't going to get a hit, but they might get to first base if they didn't take it off their shoulder. And he, so he was a good example. And there was another one later in my career, this guy, Daniel Sadler, who I uh, never played with him, but I played against him in a couple different seasons. And he was also exceptionally hard thrower. He was like 94 to 98, maybe 99. And uh, it was a really weird situation where I watched as he was pitching for the Summers at Patriots that his team was like cajoling him as if it was like 12 U baseball. They were like, come on, you can like, you can do it. You can throw a strike. Like, come on, come on. I was like, ah, that's a, that's a grown man. And he's throwing the ball extremely hard. Like he was throwing 96, but just couldn't strike. He just couldn't get enough called strikes to get anyone out. Um, and the night that he pitched against us, he had like five walks and it was, it was pretty ugly. Now, not knocking this guy. He was very successful over the whole of his career and extremely hard thrower. I think played for a lot of like different, like six or seven major league organizations. Um, exceptional arm. And as far as I know, I'd never met him probably a really nice guy, but I just remember he just didn't have the command to not get help from hitters. He needed help from hitters to have enough uh, command to just pitch really. And so he was a guy and this guy, Evan was a guy and I was also a guy where I could throw my curveball for strikes amazingly well as a high school uh, junior and senior. That was just like my pitch. That's what got me into college. It's really the only reason I'm here today because that curveball got me a roster spot to play Division One baseball. Um, and then, uh, but as the strike zone shrank, it shrinks a lot for curveballs because umpires see the big break. And they don't like it when it's up. They don't like it when it's really breaking hard, but it stays up. It really appears to be a ball. And when it breaks below the kneecap, they call that a ball too, even though it probably definitely broke through the, you know, like the plane of the strike zone. So really they only give you strikes if it's in this really narrow like shoebox where it breaks into the bottom half of the of the strike zone, right? Like above the knee and below mid-thigh. Anything that breaks above where they catch it above mid-thigh on a curveball. It just looks so bad, and they call them balls. I ran into my incompetent period, or not incompetent period. I like I hit incompetency uh, in the Atlantic League, which you know lots of like former Double A AA and Triple A umpires too. The guys with really st small strike zones and hitters that laid off my curveball. So hitters didn't help me with my curveball, and I couldn't throw it into that shoebox. I just couldn't. I just didn't have the command to do it. And uh, that pitch just like went away from me. So that, that was where I hit my level where not enough guys chased and the strike zone was too small for me for me to throw that curveball effectively. And I knew that. And I knew it limited me. And uh, I knew that I just probably couldn't have 
been a major leaguer unless I had some other pitch, some other breaking pitch that I could throw for a strike enough because I just did not throw it for a strike enough to, to get hitters out. I knew I couldn't throw a 2-1, 2-2 curveball in the major leagues and have and get an out on it. I, a guy wouldn't swing at it if it was in the dirt, and I couldn't throw it into that little shoebox to punch him out on strikes. And I couldn't throw it into that shoebox enough where they knew they had to swing at it because when you throw it for enough, en enough for strikes, then they do start to expand. This, you know, hitters will start to chase it more. Um, but when you're never throwing it for strikes, they know, oh, I see curveball spin, I'll just take it. It's called Xing it out. And, uh, and so umpires obviously play a role in that too because, again, the higher level you go, the better umpires get, the more specific and narrow and tight that strike zone is, and the better the hitters get, the narrow their chase window gets. And now you'll eventually reach, if your command is not excellent, that level of incompetency, and you're not going to know it until you get there. And uh, I was lucky I had good enough fastball command where I could throw enough strikes to kind of make up for a lack of command on my curveball. And also like a relative lack of command on my changeup too. So um, I know that, that the reason, besides injuries and advanced age and all this other stuff, um, just not being to command my off-speed stuff is really the big, uh, the big, red flag in uh, in me as a as a player so um and again it's just one of those things you're not going to know until you get there and then with like hitters same thing you know hitters are great until they start seeing curveballs right everyone's great at baseball until they start seeing curveballs and then can they figure it out can they adapt can they learn to hit that pitch a lot of kids can't um and then varsity you start to see more decent breaking balls and then college you might be able to hit a, a high school breaking ball which in general are not very good uh, kids that think they have a good breaking ball in high school don't have a good breaking ball at all in the grand scheme of college and pro baseball. It's actually a piece of garbage compared to what real curveballs look like and real sliders look like. Uh, and these these hitters, they get to the next level, hit a buck eighty, and that's it. You know, you hit a buck eighty, you know, you get to play some Division One baseball because you can smash high school pitching. You know, if you're a good hitter in my area, uh, you're going to see seventy-seven to eighty-two most of the time as a high school varsity hitter. That's what you're going to face. So if you're really, you got a nice swing and you're pretty strong, you could just feast on that and go 0 for 4 when you see the once in a while 87, 88, and above kind of pitcher. Because they're out there. There's, there's some good arms in the area too, but the vast majority of them are high 70s, low 80s. So if you smash this high 70s, low 80s guys with junky breaking stuff and no change-ups to speak with, because no one throws a good change-up, you might get a chance to play Division One baseball if you're a big physical guy and you fit that mold. But then you're going to face 88 to 90 most of the time with guys with better breaking balls than you've probably ever seen, and you might go O for the world, and that's where you hit your incompetent period. Like, you just didn't know. We Like, you did well with what we asked you to do in high school. You feasted off those bad pitchers. But now the level of play jumps tremendously, and you just maybe can't do it. That's just kind of how it is. Same thing with pitchers. You know, you can dominate high school hitters with a fastball, decent command, and one second pitch that's okay. And if you're 87, 88, 89, and you have an okay curveball, you're going to dominate high school baseball. And you probably get to play some Division One baseball, and uh, you might get destroyed because 88's not going by, guys, like it was in high school. And that curveball that was pretty good because you threw 88, it's not very good anymore. It's a below average curveball for the Division One level, 
and now you got to sink or swim real quick. You got to figure out how I can throw a, a I can throw higher quality strikes in my fastball because I don't blow by guys anymore. I got to figure out how I can throw a better curveball or a, develop a slider. And I was talking about another podcast how no one teaches kids sliders. Everyone learns a curveball first. Everyone learns a curveball until I think they get to college for the most part, and then they make a decision like, hey, your curveball's not good enough to get hitters out here, so let's teach you a slider because they're just going to teach you the pitch you haven't learned yet. And there's some percentage of kids that throw sliders in, in high school and a very small percentage probably in junior high baseball, but on the whole, most youth baseball is curveball-based. And then when you get to college and then pro ball, most guys throw sliders. It's, I think it's like two to one guys that throw sliders to curveballs. So you under you question like why is that switch? It's you know if most youth players throw curveballs and then most pros play throw sliders, chances are those guys that throw sliders in the pros threw curveballs until they hit a point of incompetency, and then they had to start they had to pick a new pitch, and they obviously it's going to be the the other breaking ball which is the slider. So uh, just food for thought, you know, like everyone hits that level, and again the umpires in the strike zone. Uh, they have a lot to do with that. And then there's other things like arms. You know, they talk about uh, drafting only shortstops. And that's true because the game speeds up so much. And you have to charge the ball incredibly hard as an infielder. You have to have a very strong arm because you have to make all those off-angle throws. You know, like you see a guy like Andrelton Simmons, you know, charging, fielding a weak ground ball right by the pitcher's mound, you know, falling as he makes a... A, a submarine arm angle throw to first base, and he still got juice on that thing. Like a ball's probably going only like 67 or 70. That's a lot of juice from that low arm angle as he's like falling. Uh, and to have that kind of arm strength on such an awkward throw, that means he's probably got like 90, 95 from up above. Because if you're 90, 95 up here, then it's like, I don't want to go off camera. <laughs> I don't know how to make this work, but uh, every you know, the more off balance you get, the less you can like use good throwing mechanics. The more that velocity goes down. So you need to have a very high percentage on tap, so that when you're only tapping into 80, 70, 60, 50 percent of it, because you're on the run, you're on the move, you're off balance, you're jumping, you're doing whatever, you still have enough on it to get big league hitters out who are very fast. Because the average big league 60 time is like a six nine or something like that, and. Uh, so it's, you know, the game speeds up a tremendous amount where guys that maybe can play shortstop in high school don't have the arm strength or can't make off-balance throws enough to play shortstop at, in, in any collegiate level. And then guys that can play collegiate shortstop can't play uh, shortstop in pro ball. And guys that play shortstop in the low levels of minors just aren't going to be good enough to play it in the big leagues. So uh, there's, there's that stuff too, and I see it now. I mean, I have players on my team that, I know they won't be able to play shortstop in Division One baseball. They might be able to play Division One baseball, but not shortstop there. So um, we'll find a good position for them. But you know, everyone thinks they can play shortstop until they can't. And coaches, it's sometimes the eyeball tests or sometimes objective tests. Uh, but a lot of it's just speed of the game and all that stuff. And you won't know that until you get there. But guys that have been there, they know like, hey, you just don't have the arm strength to play short. You don't have the arm strength to play third. Uh, you're going to be a second baseman at the college level, or you're going to be an outfielder at the college level, you know, whatever it is. Or you're going to be a reliever in pro ball. It's funny that I, I talked to a scout friend who um, we were talking about 
Mizzou baseball. I went and watched my alma mater play Mizzou, and I talked about Mizzou's starter, who was like this good lefty. He had good numbers last year. He's one of their weekend starters, and he was like 88 to 92, uh, slider that couldn't strike guys out, um, even on, on my team, which were, you know, like a, a lower level Division One. So I was basically giving my scouting report, which was like, yeah, threw a lot of strikes, um, 88 to 92 looked like, okay slider, like not a strikeout pitch, okay changeup. And he's like, yeah, he'll probably go in like the seventh round. I'm like, what? That's a really high draft pick. That's like 250 grand. He's like, yeah. He's like, that's about, you know, what they pay for a guy like him who's like had success, SEC baseball, had success, um, you know, strike thrower, lefty. Obviously, he throws hard enough as a lefty, even though 88 to 92 is not that hard anymore. Um, you know, yeah, seventh round, something like that. Sounds like probably what he'll go, you know, especially with the track record of success. I'm like, man, that seems really high. He's like, yeah, he'll be a he'll be a middle reliever in the minors, never be a big leaguer. I'm like, so why are we paying that much money for him? He's like, just how it is. I'm like, okay, but uh, but yeah, you you look at a guy like him, like if he can't strike out division like even lower division one hitters with a second pitch, which his he couldn't strike guys out, he couldn't finish them off. Um, he's definitely not gonna be able to finish pro guys off, right? So they look for that. They look for strikeout numbers. If you're not striking guys out in the collegiate level, you're going to strike out even fewer guys in the pro level, and you're going to struggle. And uh, that was kind of like, you know, my eyeball test with him there because he could not put hitters away with his slider, and he couldn't put them away with his changeup, and his fastball was average for pro ball. So he's not going to put put guys away with that either. So he's just going to be a guy that kind of eats up innings, throws enough strikes, but really can't. You know, you're going to expect a four or five ERA out of him, probably, unless he's got an exceptional command and, you know, whatever. But um, when you can't put guys away with an out pitch, it's tough to continue to climb. You'll eventually reach that level where if you can't put big league hitters away, they're going to eventually get you. You know, that's kind of how good they are. So, um, so yeah, so um, I think that's uh, that's a wrap for this podcast. But, you know, two longer, longer-ish uh, topics, umpires... Um, and then just sort of uh, the, the ever contracting strike zone and just sort of levels of incompetency as you climb up in sports because I don't think it's, uh, I think it's an interesting topic. But, you know, we sometimes find fault in people and, and players. And you're like, oh, he was good in college, but he stinks in pro ball. Or, oh, he was great in the minors, terrible in the majors. You, you can't blame people. You keep climbing ladder. You do the best you can. At some point, you figure out, is my talent good enough to, to last here? For most guys, they hit a point where it's not. It's incredibly hard to stick at any high level of sports, especially like major league sports, you know? So anyway, um, subscribe, iTunes, YouTube. If you're not on my email list, you definitely need to get on it because uh, I have some great freebies. My changeup course is going away soon. It's not gonna be free much longer. I will have a, uh, a free version of it, but the change of course as it is is going to be um, a paid course pretty soon. So jump on there. And uh, my, my newest course, Pitching Isn't Complicated, is launching this week. So stay tuned for that. So if you're not on my email list, definitely jump on there because I send out good info, updates on my, uh, my new blog posts and podcasts and all this stuff. I just kind of aggravate everything, aggregate everything for you in a little weekly digest. So if you're interested in that, jump on my my newsletter, and uh, we'll catch you next week on uh, Dear Baseball Gods.